You know, um, when I was uh, thinking about what to say today, um, this t- at two times in the year I find really difficult as a pastor because you have to, you, you're kind of forced to talk about something and the Christmas and Easter. And so normally at Easter we do like a one-off preach, like that, you know, we talk about the cross and we talk about Jesus. And I thought, well, I've done that for 12 years. I'd like to actually find out what happens this side of the cross. So I went for, I've gone for a two-parter and it's called Easter and Beyond. And you see, one of the things that we as pastors often end up doing is talking about the cross on Easter Sunday. And actually Easter Sunday is about the resurrection. It's about the power. It's about the new life. And so it's that that I want to talk about. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, if, you, if you want to like be grim and sad, you missed it on Friday. Okay, it's happy day. Now, when I was a kid, I, I don't know if, you, if this translates to you Southerners, but us Northerners had this, uh, this idea, and my mum used to say all the time, that kids, i.e. me, should be seen and not heard. Amen. You remember that? <laughs> seen and not heard. How many of you got that when you were a kid? You should be seen and not heard. So I tried hard to be seen and not heard. Um, and I was thinking about how we respond to Jesus' resurrection. And actually, I thought over the centuries, what the church has been is heard and not seen. Heard and not seen. We talk a lot, we say a lot, but actually we need to prove some of it. Because um, sadly, when you're heard and not seen, eventually you get to the state we're in in this nation, which is not heard and not seen as the body of Christ outside of the church. And I think it's amazing when our guys go out on the streets and all the other outreach things we do and reaching out into other towns. But we need to be both heard and seen. Seen to be bringing the kingdom. And it's that that I want to talk about this morning. So I'm going to start where today starts, which is Jesus raised from the grave. So good news. The gospel is actually really good news. And so it's... Just let, have a, turn to the person next to you say, this is going to be a good news morning. Now, here's the thing about the resurrection. You see, Jesus, he's raised from the dead. He talks to his disciples for, for a little period of time, and then he ascends into heaven, and you're a disciple, and he's gone. And you're going like, and, and the, you can just imagine them that, well, maybe you can't, but I can imagine them sat there going, so what do we do now? He said, wait, for what? What are we going to do? And if it's this Holy Spirit thing, what are we going to do when he turns up? Like, why couldn't we just get on with it? And, you know, when Jesus ascended into heaven, there was 500 people there. By the time the Holy Spirit comes, a few weeks later, there's only 120 left. Now, my mass tells me that that 380 got bored and went and got on with it in their own strength and got on with it what they decided to do instead of waiting for what God wanted to do. And uh, I guess part of the thing I, I have about Easter is this, is that from being becoming a Christian at the age of 14 to... Uh, actually uh, hearing about the Holy Spirit at the age of 22, I didn't actually know what to do. 
I realised, you know, I got this story and, and we talked about the cross and that I was forgiven and I was going to heaven and I realised I needed to share that with a few people so they could go to heaven too. But that's all there was. I didn't realise that there was any power attached to it because nobody told me. Nobody told me about resurrection power. They told me about the death of Jesus paying for how bad I was. But they didn't tell me I could change and there was power in me to change. You know, some of us have this phrase, you know, I am what I am. Well, as a believer, you're not. The I am what I am, he's dead. The new believer is alive and he's subject to change on a daily basis until we look like Jesus. You know, Paul in the, I've gone off script already. Paul in the letter to the Ephesians, he, uh, he prays that they will be filled to all the fullness of God. And he talks about them being, the, 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 the church has been given the gifts, apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists and pastors, until we all reach the stature of Christ. Yeah. Now, I don't know whether that, that, that's ever dawned on you, but it dawned on me the other day that when I get to heaven, I won't have to reach the statue of Christ because I'll be seated there with him. It's not talking about then. It's talking about now. Yeah. We're meant to display Christ. We're meant to be seen and heard. Yeah. Be seen to look like Jesus and heard as we tell people about him. So if you're like the disciples and you're trying to figure out what to do, What's the first thing you do? Well, we'll start the story. So, because we like the word, you're going to get a lot of word this morning, okay? So, we got, unlike lots of Easter stories, we're going to start in Acts. So, go to Acts chapter 1 and uh, verse 21. I'll just read it to you. Therefore, of these men have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John to this day, when he was taken up for us. Right, okay, so here's what you do if you're a disciple and you're trying to figure out what to do with the resurrection. The first thing, the priority on your agenda is to vote somebody else in to join you. That's the first thing you do, because we've looked at the numbers, we've gone, there was 12, there's now 11, we need to make it up to 12. God likes this number 12. So we're going to vote somebody in to be a disciple, an apostle alongside us. And so they decide that. Now, when they're looking at that, they don't just want any old person. Like, it's kind of easy, isn't it? Like, like let's, let's vote somebody in today. Well, should we have Kim? Should we, should we have Nicholas? Should we have Esther? Who should we have? Well, well they'll all do, won't they? Because we're all believers. But no, what they're looking for is something really important. And I, I was reading this the other day, and I'm just thinking, like, what, what was it? How did they narrow down that, that 120 to one? One who fits the bill. Here's, here's what they did. They said, right. We want somebody who's been with us the whole time, from beginning to end. From when Jesus was baptised with John to when he was raised again, to right now. And we want somebody who's seen it all, who's stayed the course, who's kept going, who's still here after the cross, 
when all of us fled. We want that person. And what we need is a witness to the entire story, an eyewitness to what's been done, what's been happened, what, what's been, what Jesus did. Now, what's the most important qualification, though? Here's the most important qualification. When he must be taken from, one of these must become with a witness with us to the resurrection. The resurrection is the thing that they were witnessing to. Now, this is really important because often, and it is important we tell the full story, we just talk about the cross. But they're saying the important thing is we want somebody who was a witness to the resurrection. The resurrection. Thousands of people saw the crucifixion, but we want somebody who's a witness to the resurrection. Why is that? Well, I believe it's because of this. It depends. Your starting point will determine the sort of church Jesus is going to build through you. If you, start, if you start and end with the cross, you never get to the victory in the new life. And so often we start and end with the cross and miss out the victory in the new life. And because of that, we don't live the new life. Now, if I'd been the apostles right there, you know, when Jesus, uh, before he ascended, he said, well, guys, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he's going to fill you with power to do what? To be my witnesses to Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So you need this power. Now, if I'm a disciple, I'm kind of wondering what's going to happen. Because I've seen Jesus die, I've seen him raised from the dead, and I have no idea what this power is. And uh, you see, if, if, I, if, I'd been Jesus, if I'd been a disciple right at that point, I'd have gone, hey guys, let's, let's start ourselves a church. Now, Peter, Peter's a good evangelist. He can get everybody in, can't he? He'll, he'll, he'll cajole them, he'll persuade them, he's eloquent, he's, he's out there. He'll stand up, we'll hide behind him. He can go and evangelise people. And, uh, you know, that, that, that Paul, he can sort out the constitution and the admin and get all the rules in place. Uh, we just need to get him saved first. And uh, who else should we have? John, John, pastoral for John, isn't it? Pastoral, yeah, John, John can go pastoral. And uh, we need somebody to write it all down. We need, like, a, a secretary in charge of admin. Luke, Luke. Now, he's, he's a good doctor. He'll be able to write it all down. And, and they would have formed this church and got on with it and probably done okay in a small place. But Jesus had something else in mind. He had resurrection power on his mind for them. So he tells them to wait until that resurrection power is made real in them. Here's the point I'm trying to make. It is important that the church of Christ, and that means you, have actually seen something to be a witness to. You see, these guys, they didn't have the New Testament to preach from. It wasn't written yet. What was important is that they were a witness to something they had seen. And so often, our evangelizing, our witnessing, and our church doing lacks power because we aren't witnesses to having seen something. 
And so we need to focus on seeing things to keep pushing in for the miraculous, to keep pushing in for change in our lives, to keep pressing into God for the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because we need to not just be heard, but we need to be seen too. Now, I know that's in our DNA as a church, but right at the start of this year, God gave us a, a word, didn't he, that we had to take what had been invested in us over the years and now start going with it. To be not just a witnesses to what we've heard or read, but what we've seen. Um, you know, some people, I, I guess, how can I put it? We each need to challenge ourselves as to how far we're walking in the power of God. There is no power shortage. Because each one of us has the same spirit as the spirit of Christ. It is the spirit of Christ. the same spirit in us as was in him. So there's no power shortage, but there's a manifestation shortage. And we need to keep pressing in towards that. Now, one of the things that we, we have, and I'll get onto this in a minute, is a mentality that it's about church. And church needs to do everything. And that, in a sense, keeps us rooted in our seats. Church gathered like this is hugely important. Church meeting together in our midweek groups, hugely important. But there are another 110 hours a week when the world needs to see Jesus. So church scattered is hugely important too. And that's when we need to be heard and seen. And this is when the resurrection power of Jesus needs to be heard and seen. You with me? Do you agree? Good. So you're all going to do it, yeah? Excellent. Good. Now we'll talk about how you do it. So about seven weeks after the resurrection, while they've, they've all been waiting and they've voted in the new guy, the city of Jerusalem is again filled with people. So it was filled at Easter and it's now filled again. It's another celebration, uh, another uh, religious feast. And we've got something like 120 people gathered in an upper room and the Spirit of God falls. And they go out into the city and they proclaim the message. Now, let's see what happens. Acts chapter 2. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, aren't these not... Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Now, I don't, again, just spot that. These people are the Galileans. What they're saying is last time we were here in this place, these people all scattered and went in hiding. They all fled because Jesus was crucified. Um, and here they are again now, seven weeks later, and they're saying he's alive. Does this guy not stay in the grave? No, this guy doesn't stay in the grave because he is alive. And seven weeks later, the people who all fled are now witnessing to what they have seen and heard. 
and there's no stopping them. People will often say, well, you know, you can't believe all that Jesus stuff. You can't believe uh, all this stuff about Jesus and the resurrection and all that. Oh, it's all fairy tales. It's all myths. It's all that. There are so many proofs of the resurrection of Jesus. It is the most historically attested fact of that time period. However, here's the one that I think is the biggest proof. People will say, well, forget about the Bible and sh prove to me the resurrection. Well, why do you have to forget about the Bible? That's cheating, isn't it? You've just set your own rules. You can't forget about the Bible. There's 24,000 existing manuscripts of the Bible, all written within 30 years of Jesus' death. And they agree 98.7% with each other. And they're there. You can go and look at them. So don't forget about the Bible. But here's the biggie. Here's the biggie. If you're a disciple and you fled and ran away and you're now out on the streets claiming that Jesus is resurrected, Jesus is alive, that he's ascended into heaven, and somebody challenges you and threatens you with death, what are you going to do? Now, here's what they didn't do. Not one single one denied what they had seen. Why? Because they had seen it. I've got a little diagram here, and uh, all, these, all these guys in in this upper room, they, they'd lived, it's not on there, so don't look up there, they, they, they all, with one exception, suffered horrendous deaths. And not one of them denied it. But, by the way, we know where they all buried as well. Isn't that interesting? You, the, the bodies are there. So, James the Greater, died, stabbed with the sword. Well, we know about that, that's in Acts. James the Less, first bishop of Jerusalem, he's stoned to death. Thaddeus, He's filled with arrows. I don't know how you get filled with arrows, but it sounds quite bad, doesn't it? Uh, Philip, crucified by soldiers. Thomas, stabbed with a spear multiple times. Paul, beheaded in Rome. Peter, crucified upside down. John, died. I'll come back to John. Died a natural death. Matthew, stabbed with a sword. Judas, committed suicide. Don't follow that one. Simon, crucified. Bartholomew, flayed alive and beheaded when dead. Andrew, crucified on an X-shaped cross. Matthias, crucified in Judea. John is the only one that survives and dies a natural death. Why? Because John realised that he was filled with the spirit of Jesus. And they tried, this is an historically attested fact, they tried to boil John in oil and he would not die. So he lived to old age. All these men would not deny what they had seen in the face of horrendous persecution and death. That is why I believe and know that the resurrection is true. Because men were prepared to die for it instead of deny it. You don't die for a fairy tale. I am not about to die for Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, or Hansel and Gretel. I'm just not going to do it. But I will die for something I have seen and I have witnessed. So, resurrection power. Peter gets up. He's, the, the Holy Spirit falls. They're filled with resurrection power, just like Jesus had been filled. Um, Peter gets up, and we're now in Acts chapter 2. 
And I'm moving on quickly. I'm on verse 14. This is what it says. Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. What do you want to be known? That these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. They're not early morning drinkers. But this is what was prophesied and spoken of by the prophet Joel. Now, move on to verse 22. Men of Israel, because what he does is he, he then repeats something that this was a fulfillment of in the Old Testament. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the very people who'd seen Jesus die. And what he's saying is this. You guys, you were all here when he was crucified. Now you've come back seven weeks later and we're talking about that Jesus again and he's alive. You might think he's dead. We've seen him alive. And then on verse 22, what he's saying is this. I don't have to convince you he was dead, do I? Because you all saw it. You were eyewitnesses to his death. You were there, weren't you? Now, let's go to verse 23. How do I know you were there? Him being delivered by determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God, you took by lawless hands, you crucified him, you put him to death. That's how you know he's dead, because you did it. You did it. You did it. Every single person in this room who has ever sinned, you put him to death. You crucified him. You did it. That's what he's saying. You did it. But God raised him up having loosened the, loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that death should hold him. Amen? Amen? Not possible that death should hold him. You put him to death, but God raised him up, so it was not possible that death should hold him. Verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. You put him to death, you saw him die, we saw him raised, were witnesses of him being alive. Because the grave could not hold Jesus. Why do they concentrate so much on the resurrection? You see, I don't know if you have ever thought about this, but if Jesus died and on the cross... He took all the wrath of God and he paid for your sicknesses and he paid for, for all that is yours. And God said, your sins I will remember no more. As far as the east is the west, I will remove them from you. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. Isn't that enough? No. 
That is where most of the church lives. That's why it is heard and not seen. Because forgiveness of sins, healing and all the rest of it was possible under the old covenant before Jesus died. He paid for all that once and for all. So you've got forgiveness, you're going to heaven. But what now? Under the old covenant, nobody could change. Nobody could break free of sin. They were stuck in their sins. They were told how bad they are. They were told that punishment was what they deserved. Death was what they deserved. And they were able to get over that by the sacrificial system. Before Jesus, you knew how bad you were, but you couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus paid for all you couldn't do about it on the cross. But then he rose again to give his new life so we can do something about it to walk free of sin, to walk free of all the stuff that's held us back, to walk free of addictions, to walk free of bondage, to walk free of that I'm what I'll, I am what I am and I'll always be that way. No, you will not because Christ rose from the dead and he's alive in you. And everything is now subject to change because the life of Christ is in you. If we stay at the cross, we stay dead and powerless. If we get into resurrection, we rise again to new life in Christ, full of his spirit. That is what the world needs to hear and to see. Amen? Amen. So they come, to, they come to Peter and say, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We killed him. And now, you're, now he's alive. What do we do? He says what? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, we like that word, don't we? If, we? if we're religious people, we love the word repent. And we like baptized. Because we can have courses to tell people how to get baptized and what it all means. And we can check them out for about six months beforehand to make sure they really do believe everything that they should believe. And they're doctrinally correct and they're fitting with our denomination so they can get baptized. We have just completely washed the power out of it. Here's the thing, repent. Now, I just want you to know, repentance, the word that's used here, does not mean that every week you need to get down on your face, bawl, squall, cry, say how sorry you are, how miserable you are, and you won't do it again. That's old covenant repentance. New covenant repentance is much more powerful than that, but asks a lot more of you. Because new covenant repentance asks that that moment isn't just for a moment, it's for the rest of your life. New covenant repentance requires you to change your mind about who Jesus is and what that means for the rest of your life. It's a change in your mind so you acknowledge who Jesus is and it changes the course of your life. And what did they do as a result? They baptised people. Now we, we've replaced that with something that the Bible doesn't really recognise, which is called the sinner's prayer. But actually what they did is they baptised people straight away. Why? Because it was a public declaration in front of everybody that you believe Jesus was raised from the dead and that he was going to give you new life as a result. So that's how they became Christians. They got baptized. 
It was their declaration. They didn't say, Jesus, come into my heart today. They said, I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. I've changed my mind about who he is. I recognize he's the king of kings, lord of lords, and he's the only one who's ever raised from the dead. I recognize he died for my sins. And so now too, publicly, so everybody knows that I'm a follower of Jesus, right in front of these people who might kill me because I do it, I'm going to be baptized. And when I come out of that water, I'm believing that I have come again to new life. So that's what Peter tells them to do. It's not some religious thing. We need to stop being religious and start being real carriers of the kingdom. Yeah. So, how am I doing for time? Okay, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm good. I'm good. I've got past my first paragraph. <laughs> Here's what I want you to know. About eight or nine miles south of here, there's a place called Hinkston. Anybody live near Hinkston? Hinkston's a tiny little village with something world famous in it because it has the genome project there where they're decoding all the DNA. And it has lots of very clever people, research scientists, taking bits out of genes and inserting other bits and seeing what happens. If they ever get out of there, I don't want to know what happens. Because it's just as likely to produce something bad as good. But there's our, our daughter, Jessica, she wrote uh, her uh, dissertation for her law degree on something called mitochondrial donation. You might have heard that. It's, it's this idea of three parent families where they take out what might be bad genes and get better genes from some third person and insert them back in. It's never been proven to work, but they, they wanted the law to be able to do it. And they've got that in the UK. We're the only country in the world that allows that. And so here's what I believe that we've produced over the decades and hundreds of years of Christianity in this country. I believe that we've produced genetically modified Christianity. Where we've taken out the good pits and inserted human effort and human organisation instead. Where we've taken out the power and inserted clever management skills. We've taken out laying down your life for Jesus and inserting it, will you follow the vision of my church? We've, we've taken out this idea that individually we are carriers of the kingdom and replaced it with something that cannot bear that weight called the organised church that only meets for two hours on a Sunday and is expected to change the world. Because if the church do it, I'll happily volunteer, maybe. But don't expect me to do anything in 110 hours a week. That's genetically modified Christianity. And there's only one group of people who are responsible for producing genetically modified Christianity. They're called the church. And we have produced it because it kind of gives us a kick as pastors that people are sat here on a Sunday morning and somebody will bother to listen to us. And when we get that, we kind of get our egos going and we want it to get bigger and bigger. Hear me, faith life. I don't want this to get bigger and bigger. I'll be delighted if it gets bigger and bigger because we have a message that people need to hear. What I want is it to get wider and wider. I want it to get out there. So we're not thinking this is it. 
when we walk out of here, this isn't it. This is the celebration of what has been hit last week out there. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we need to start modifying genetically Christianity back to its original form. Church gathered, but church scattered. Church living in the 110 hours a week. Now, here's what Peter and John discovered. They discovered that church can live in the 110 hours a week. They're going up to the temple. So you've all come up to the temple this morning. Say hello to the temple. It's kind of high. You know, we, we, we asked God for school. We got a cathedral. It's good with me. And we've got this place and we all, we all come. And as we're walking up here, just imagine you're Pete and John. There's a lame guy who's sat in front of the church. And he's crying out to them to give him some money. You, you, you probably all know this story, don't you? He's crying out for them to give him some money. And uh, they're going up to pray. Now, quite apart from the fact that some of us might be tempted to just walk past and go out, get on and get in and pray, or get in and get in and have our coffee, Pete and John, go, they, they, they're attracted by what he's saying, and they go like, I haven't got any money. So what, what can I do? Here's what I'm going to do. Silver and gold, I haven't got any. But I'll take you by the hand. In the name of Jesus, walk. Now, if you're a crippled person from birth, that's quite a shock to you. What's more of a shock is you're now stood up and you're standing in your own strength. Seen and heard. Now, what happens? Crippled person gets up. And despite the fact they tell him not to, he goes dancing and shouting and telling everybody. Idiot. <laughs> All it, go, go. <laughs> No. <laughs> what happens? Big crowd comes. Big crowd comes. I think it's interesting that kind of, we often see miracles in church, but big crowds don't come. Because we're cynical in the body of Christ. The world out there needs to see the signs and wonders, and we're doing them in here. Until we do them out there, we won't grow. We won't develop in our giftings. Anyway, big crowd comes. Here's Peter, elected evangelist, got his admin team behind him. Here we go. Uh, chapter 3, verse 13. The God of Abraham, he stands up, he he's got a crowd. Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, who you killed. You killed him. And you denied him in the presence of Pilate. Not only were you responsible for killing him, but we're in the temple now. You were the guys that lied. You were the guys who took the easy course. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. When Pilate himself was determined to let him go, you came up with a plan and you put Barabbas in instead. You. And you killed the prince and author of life. Who God raised from the dead and of which we are witnesses. Are you getting a pattern here? 
Are you seeing what's happening? Good. Here's the thing. What is the foundation of the apostles' faith? The resurrection. What is the foundation of our faith? The resurrection. The resurrection. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, you are still stuck in your sin and you cannot change and there is no power. The foundation of their faith was that a God-made man died but then rose again to new life. And he's giving that new life away to anyone who wants it. But it's not a new life like the old. It's a new life with benefits, a new life with power, a new life to enable us to change. Now, let's just roll on a bit more because we're trying to find out what happens post-resurrection. And this is all kind of quick action. The rest of Acts takes like 30 years, but this is like really quick. So cha verse, chapter 4, verse 1. As they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, here's these guys who fled, who've run away, who are now stood in front of the chief priests, the Sadducees, and the temple guard. Does that ring any bells? These are the chief priests, the Sadducees and the temple guard that put Jesus on trial, lied, to, lied about him and had him crucified. And now you're standing in front of them saying, you did it, I've witnessed to the resurrection and I'm standing in front of you knowing you want to crucify me too. They are absolutely 100% certain that they've seen Jesus alive. And they put themselves right in front to preach to the people who killed Jesus. And basically what they do then is they put him in custody, lock him up for the night. Verse 6, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, as many as were the family of the high priest, were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had them set in the midst, they asked by what power or by what name have you done this? Not only did they stand in front of the people that crucified Jesus, they're now in front of Caiaphas, who engineered it all. And, the, and he says, by what name are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why does he say that? You see, if I'd been Caiaphas... And I just said, well, we're followers of Jesus and we, we're really sad that we ran away. But we really believed everything he said. So now we've come back to tell you what he said. What does he do? He crucifies them. For the same reasons he engineered the crucifixion of Jesus. He's got a problem though. There's a man that everybody has seen in front of a gate coming into the temple for 30 years who's been crippled from birth and he's now stood in front of him. He's now evidence for the defence. And he's dancing around and he's shouting around and saying, they healed me. They healed me. Resurrection life. Resurrection life. 
They can't nail the disciples to the cross because they have an undeniable miracle in front of them done in his name. So Peter being Peter, what does he do? He turns around to the Sadducees, the chief priests, the temple guard and Caiaphas and his buddies and he says, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who you crucified, Caiaphas, high priest, temple guard, Sadducee, you crucified him who God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands before you whole. The same thing that God has done for Jesus, he will do for every one of us and raise us to new life. Death is not the end. It's the beginning of new life. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were stupid people, uneducated people, people with no education, untrained in anything apart from fishing, they marveled and they realised that these men had been with Jesus. Why? Because they see things with their own eyes. We can tell the world as much as we like the stories about Jesus, but they need to see Jesus. They need to see Jesus in our life changed, in our courage, in our boldness in going, and they need to see the power of the resurrection as we pray for people and set people free and deliver people. Amen? Here's where I'm coming to. This is kind of the last bit. You have the life of God in you, the resurrection life of God in you, to be heard and to be seen. To be heard and to be seen. Not not heard and not seen, but to be heard and to be seen. Jesus' work did not end at the cross. I know that sounds controversial because it kind of grates, doesn't it? Because we've got so used to just stopping at the cross. And I lived there from the age of 14 to the age of 22. And it was dry and hard work and produced no change. Jesus' work didn't end at the cross. The cross is not the finishing point. The cross is the payment The resurrection is the starting point for Christ in you. You were born again with resurrection power to be seen and to be heard. That's why Jesus said, it's better for everybody if I go away and I send you the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm I'm a disciple and I'm on the other side of the cross and I'm hearing Jesus say, it's better for you if I scarper off this planet. And by the way, they're going to kill me. And it's better for you. You know, like like me, Jesus, walk on water, feed the 5,000, feed the 4,000, calm storms, cleanse lepers, raise from the dead, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, get the lame to walk. Me, Jesus, out of here. And it's better for you. 
And if I'd been a disciple, I'd have gone, can you just stay? Can you just stay? Because then you can carry on doing it, can't you, Jesus? Because it's all cool. It's all brilliant stuff, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I've got a plan. Got a plan, boys. Here's my plan. This stuff that I've been doing, you know, like I've been sending you and you've been doing it under my authority. We're not going to have to bother about that anymore. Because when I rise again, Holy Spirit's coming. And when he comes, he's going to be in you like he's in me. You can do it. Why is it better for you? Because the Holy Spirit's going to be in you like he's in me. That's better. It's not all about me anymore. It's about me and you. And here's here's the good plan, guys. You can go everywhere. Me, I just get to draw crowds in Jerusalem. You can go for the whole world because you're not constrained to one person. And here's what, guys. You can take Cambridgeshire, Essex, Hertfordshire, Suffolk, Norfolk, and anywhere else around here. Why? Because you can do what I did. Because it's the same spirit. That's better for you, isn't it? That's better for you. Jesus in Jerusalem, not a great impact on Cambridgeshire. You on Cambridgeshire, you doing the same things as Jesus, big impact. This is what I mean by genetically modified Christianity. We're not even thinking like this. And yet Jesus is saying, that's what it's, that's what it's about. Here's, here's the last bit. Chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. We're, we're done. We're there. But Peter and John answered them, this Caiaphas, high priest, Sadducees, temple guy, and said to them, because they basically said, basically, we, how do you put it? We can't crucify you, because these people have always seen this, seen this miracle with this guy. Who, will you shut up? Will you, will you just shut up about your healing? This, sorry, this guy here who... Did I not tell you to shut up? He won't shut up. This guy that won't shut up, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to tell you to shut up. We're going to tell you, you can't talk about Jesus. You can't pray for people. You can't use Jesus' name. Sound like this country at all? Where you can't pray for people because you'll lose your job. You can't say his name. You can't proclaim Jesus. You can't evangelize. And this is what Paul says. I will serve God and not men. We serve a risen saviour. We are meant to be displayers of resurrection life. I am not saying have no wisdom, but I am saying have courage and boldness. And believe a God who is bigger than employers, governments, and all the rest of it. God is our provider. We have genetically modified Christianity to the point where we are afraid of a world that the apostles laughed at. And it's got to stop. You know... A lot of us have heard prophecies of the great end-time revival. A lot of us know Smith Wiggles' prophecy is off by heart. We won't see it as long as we hide in corners, guys. We won't see it as long as we're more afraid of men than we are of God. Why? Because the world will not see resurrection power when we are afraid. 
Why would we be afraid? Because we have convinced ourselves death is something to be feared. And yet Paul says, death, where is your sting? When we conquer the fear of death, we are unafraid of anything. And here's what, on Resurrection Sunday, 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus conquered the fear of death. Jesus conquered death for us. We live in a little itty-bitty time period where we can save many. And Jesus has conquered the one enemy that would have stopped us. He conquered death. There's nothing to be afraid of. Where is its sting? There's not sting. There's resurrection life for all of us. Why? Because Jesus rose again as the firstborn. And you're the, we're the secondborn, thirdborn, fourthborn, two billionth born. And counting. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. See, the thing I discovered when I moved on and understood that the cross was only part of the story is this. The cross always left me thinking how bad I am and how useless I was and that Jesus didn't deserve that. And yet the resurrection tells me that I didn't I was the one who didn't deserve it. And yet Jesus would die for me and then give me a gift of new life. A new life that would change me from that one who didn't deserve it to one who knew he was a son of a daughter of the king. Who would live forever with him. Amen.